Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. And I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So, we're currently reading Confident Ruby by Avdi Grimm. And today, we're going to discuss sections 4.3 and 4.4, which cover conditionally calling conversion methods and defining your own conversion protocols. And remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club and check out rubybookclub.com to follow along. So before we officially dive into this week's sections, do you mind if I tell you a quick story? I always want to hear a good story, Saran. <laughs> so earlier today, I was pairing with our Conobi apprentice, Sharon, who's absolutely amazing. And we were figuring out how to implement this new feature and this new idea that we had. And we were breaking things down. And, you know, I usually like to jot down a little list of how I want the feature to look before really diving in. And while we were going through that process, I thought, hmm, I feel like we covered how to approach this and how to plan for this in Confident Ruby. And so remember back in episode one, when we looked through that introduction and we had that list where Avdi walked us through, you know, here are the things I want my method to do. And then the second review is let's name the actual methods. And the third review is let's figure out who receives the methods. And then from there, you figure out what classes and objects to use. Right, exactly. That's what we did this morning. And it worked out really, really freaking well. Hey! I know. I was so excited. I said, wait a minute. Hold on. Let me go to my book. I think I have a, a strategy for this. And we did it together. And it was so great. You know, as, as, a, as an apprentice, it was so great for her to kind of see that workflow and have that structure. And it was great for me to be able to think through each step very clearly and explain it. So I'm, you know, this book is already helping me in my real life. So I'm, I'm very excited and wanted to share. That's quite cool. I haven't had such a great concrete example like you have done, but I have been more aware of sort of structuring my methods with this idea of, collecting my inputs, Mm -hmm. performing the result, performing the work and then delivering results, been doing a lot of sort of paragraphing within my methods to make sure Mm -hmm. I try and separate those concerns. So yeah, already, you know, it is at the back of my mind, some of the stuff I'm learning and I'm looking forward to finding more opportunities to implement them. Yeah, yeah, me too. I love when books have, you know, real impact on, on what you're doing. So really excited to keep going. So shall we dig into 4.3? Let's do that. So this one is called Conditionally Call Conversion Methods. And so the idea for this is we want to provide support for transforming inputs using conversion protocols. And so the idea is we want some flexibility in our inputs and We want some guidelines. We don't want to just accept any old thing, but sometimes we do want a little bit more flexibility. We want our methods to be a little bit more forgiving. So how do we strike that balance? That's kind of the the goal that I got from this. Is that what you got from it too? Yeah, that's 100% what I got because if we think about what we were looking at last week, it was like, here's how you take one thing and manipulate it into something you want. And just Mm -hmm. here's how you do that. And now this is saying... Yep, that's fine if we're generally expecting one type of input, but often that's not the case. So how Mm -hmm. can we call our transformations only when we want to? Yeah, and I feel like especially when you're dealing with user input, I'm just like, oh, Lord, 
what are the 101 different things that a user can possibly put to ruin this for me? Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's always what I think. And it's funny, my my husband, I think one of the first times I, I built an application, I had him, you know, try it out. I was so proud of myself. And I, I, you know, gave him the form to fill out. I don't remember what it was. It was some silly form about frogs or something. <laughs> I don't even like frogs. I don't know. And so he, he put it in. And the first thing he did was he put in like 100 zeros. Mm. there's a hundred zeros he just he just put in like a long long string of zeros and i'm just like why would you do that why would you do that and he looked at me because you have to be ready for anything and (laughs) and so from there it was you know okay users can put in all kinds of wacky stuff and we have to be prepared for it so how can we do that yeah it's funny because i've been doing um some user testing whilst working on you know products both at work but also side projects and you got to bite your tongue when you see people typing in things that you're like, no, no, don't do that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> a funny example of my end is one of my side projects is I'm working on a running app where it sort of plots routes for you. And in order to correct um, for the route to actually be, so say you say you want to run five kilometers, because of the formula I use, I subtract by one at one point to allow for mm-hmm. the route to actually be five kilometers and not six, for example. And I remember first giving this to one of my friends and I said, Dan, how far do you want to run? And he said, one kilometer. Oh, and I was like, no, <laughs> two, That's the wrong three. answer. <laughs> Damn. Yes, exactly. And so there's this one part of that in the beginning of that chapter where it says that code can either supply the expected type, which is, I think, what we all hope for. We want people to give us what we want. Or it can pass something which responds to a documented conversion method. And so in that first case, it's giving us exactly what we want. But in the second, it's giving us something slightly different. But we can use a conversion method to kind of get it in the right state so that it's still useful. Yeah, exactly. And so Avdi goes back to the file.open method that he's discussed in previous examples. And he says this method could accept either something that responds to to path or it could be a string, which does not respond to to path. But it's still a valid argument that we want to expect. So how does this method work? And he digs into the Ruby interpreter's C code and shows that essentially what it does is it checks if the input responds to to path or not. And if it does, then it calls to path on it and uses that transformed object. Otherwise, it just uses the original object. Um, But either way, to string is eventually called. And so the resulting value is the string that we need. So we talked about how type checking is generally bad right? When we're coding, we should not do type checking. But if we're looking into, you know, the, the, the C code and figuring out how it's, how it's really getting done, there is type checking involved. And to a degree, I think it was a little bit later in the chapter, Avdi kind of says, you know, well, this might feel like type checking, but it's a little bit different. And I guess the thing that I was left with was the question, okay, so it sounds like there's some situations where type checking or maybe a form of type checking, in this case, it's, you know, responding to um, a method, is okay but how do i know when it's okay and when it's not so this is interesting because as you say you hear about type checking and oop programming and it's no 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 stay away it's a sign of another problem in your code if you have to do that and in fact in the opening 
sections of Avdi's book, doesn't he say that part of being a confident coder is that you don't have to do these checks at all? But what is interesting here is in this chapter, Avdi then says, okay, so you might be thinking I'm violating duck typing, but let's, before we address that, let's look at all the other ways that we could have done this. And so he says, we could explicitly check the type. So we could say, is this file name a string or not? But as Avdi says, that doesn't work because you're restricting yourself to either accepting a string or not. And we, we know we want more flexibility than that. And so then we can say, rather than checking the type, let's just check all the methods that we're going to want to call on this file name. So gsub, strip, and raise a type error if it doesn't respond to any of these. But of course, that's gonna be incredibly brittle because say you want to extend what that uh, method does, you've got to then keep including the methods. So then he says, well, what about if we just call 2s on the input? Because both a string and a path name would work, but then we allow for invalid inputs. So there are other things that respond to 2s that we don't want to filter through our method. And then the other thing is we could call two path on every input and then alter string so that it responds to two path. But warning, what are we getting into? Is that is that monkey patching? We don't wanna do that. And so then he goes back to this conditionally calling two path on it. And he says that, now this is an interesting um, distinction that I highlighted and I'll just read it. And he says, this use of respond to is different from most type checking in a subtle but important way. It doesn't ask, are you the kind of object I need? Instead, it says, can you give me the kind of object I need? As such, it strikes a useful balance. Inputs are checked, but in a way that is open for extension. So how are those two things different? Because they don't sound that different to me. So I, I sat and thought about this and I was thinking of this idea of confidence where, so let's, let's take the first question, which says, are you the kind of object I need? I guess with that one, the question is, if you're not, then what am I going to do? Like, do I, it's almost like, I, I kind of need this thing and I hope you're that thing, because if you're not, then I might have to do some other things. Whereas when it says, can you give me the kind of object I need? Maybe there's a there's more confidence there because you know what you want and you're just trying to find it and you don't want to waste time if if you're given something that isn't going to fulfill that purpose. So I don't know whether when we think about this idea of confident coding, it's a sign of smells in our code if we we need a certain thing, but there could be all these possibilities where we don't get the object type we want and so we keep type checking. Whereas really, it's not necessarily a smell if we could be passed. Like you said, you your code, you know, we spoke about this idea of our code having boundaries. And you sp we spoke at the top of the show about how our users can, can input all sorts of funny things. And we want to have some flexibility, but we also recognize that sometimes the things that are input we just can't work with. And so I guess it's kind of like an interview in a sense. It's saying, um, can you can you do the job? No, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Whereas, ah, okay, I can work with this. And maybe that's the sort of distinction between, uh, I hope you're a string, because if not, uh, <laughs> I don't know, what do you think? So I'm thinking, I'm thinking, would that still hold 
if the number of types of inputs that are acceptable are are bigger or longer, right? Um, so, for, so for example, in this example, we can either have a path or we can have a string and that's it, right? Like those are basically the two options that we're trying to go for. But what if there were like four other input things that would work? Do you know what I mean? Like I'm wondering if this is acceptable at least partly because there are really just two different types of inputs that we're looking for. And if there were, you know what I mean? Mm. Like if there were many other inputs that we're looking for, because at that point we'd have like a ton of conditionals, right? It would be this, if that, this, if that, this, I mean, there'd be, you know, that, that method would be a lot longer. The respond to question that we'd ask the, the object, you know, there'd be a lots of respond to's. And so in that case, would we still be okay with that subtle difference? Well, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think there's definitely something to think about in terms of what if you're trying to allow for A, B, C, D style inputs. I guess one way to look at this is this file.open method, it doesn't just allow for string or path inputs. In fact, it allows for anything that can respond to two paths. So, oh, that's that's a good point. Yeah. So I think this is when it comes down to open for extension, which is we could create a new type of object as long as it has that interface. Yeah. Okay. So actually, I think it doesn't limit. Although Avdi's example is mainly focusing on strings and file paths, I think actually the power of it is, and it says this idea of can you give me the kind of object I need, which is can you respond to to path. Yes. Or rather than, are you a path name? Yes. And I think that is that is the distinction. And I think that you know the examples that Avdi walked through before he settles back on this this type checking is you know check that it responds to every message and check the type. I think all of those methods they actually might seem they're the ones that when you've only got two things two inputs that you're accepting are easier to manage, but they're the ones that become difficult to extend if you're looking for three, four, five different types of input, because then you get into a horrible, brittle mess where you've got to sort of add add in loads of extra checks. Whereas this this way gives you confidence because it says, this is me, this is what I want, this is what I need, and you can come and try an input and I know that this method is going to confidently handle whatever you give me, even if it's mm-hmm. a case of, sorry, I can't give you the output you want because you're not the t- kind of object I need. Yes, and, and I like the way that you phrase it. Avdi, you should you should rephrase it to the way that Nadia said it. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I think, sure I think that's it. <laughs> I think that's the important distinction, right? It's not so much what are you, it's how do you behave. And it's the how do you behave part that's a lot more maintainable and, um, as you said, is open for extension and flexible without kind of opening up a whole can of worms that making sure you're a type of object would open. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the key takeaway from this pattern, which is this idea that we just want to make, we, we're going to get a range of inputs and we can't, we can't foresee right now what those are going to be, but we want to write methods that enable us to stay confident that whatever the input object, we're going to finally end up with something that's the type that we need. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. That was really helpful. Thank you, Nadia. No, thank you. That was really helpful to discuss that with you because I don't think I'd, <laughs> uh, you know, 
it's funny when you're reading and that's why I think it's really helpful about having this discussion and not just trying to plow through this book by myself um you can sit and you can read something and you can either understand it think you understand it or not understand it and until you start (laughs) discussing it Mm -hmm. so for example there are times when I've read read some things I'm like yeah I get that and then you know we've only done this is our third episode but there have been a couple of times where you've raised a question and I've said to myself "Mm, maybe I didn't really get that uh but alternatively when I was reading this chapter yesterday there were parts where I was where I said to myself I don't get this and I sat there and you know maybe I read read the paragraph over and over again and then I could say well it's okay if I don't quite get this because I can have a discussion with Saron tomorrow and she's going to tell me all about it. So it's great. Study groups. Study groups for the win. Right. So I feel like we sort of nicely discussed the key concept from that section, 4.3. I think so. Yeah, I think so. The one thing that I was wondering at the end is how do I recognize when I might want to use this strategy? Use this strategy. Yeah, yeah, using the whole conditionally call conversion methods. What what are some clues that I can use when I'm looking at my own code that would kind of point to this as a possible solution? So I've actually, I flicked back to the beginning of the section with Avdi's helpfully labeled indications. And I want to see if that sort of helps us answer this question. So he says, you want to provide support for transforming inputs using conversion protocols without forcing all inputs to understand those protocols. For instance, you are writing a method which deals with file names and you want to provide for the possibility of non-file name inputs, which can be implicitly converted to file names. So I guess when we're writing our software and we're assuming we'll know what that software is going to be used for or what we'll be writing a feature, and I guess it's on us to sort of think about how that feature might be used and what the possible inputs are. So maybe it's going to be a form and we might say, you know, some people might input their data this way or some people might input it that way. Or you might, maybe it's a form with an attachment which could come in different formats. And so, you know, we want everything to be a JPEG, but we're going to support PNGs and we're going to convert them. So, but, but, but I think what's, what's interesting here is if you have an you might not know the range of inputs that your system um, might need to cater for but if you set up your code in this way or with this thinking in mind then it's going to be easy to extend it and broaden it later on makes sense cool so shall we move on to 4.4 define your own conversion protocols yes so in this chapter we are kind of building off of 4.3 right because we're still dealing with um we're still dealing with these conversion protocols but this time we're actually defining our own and so in the example that we talk about when we're talking about two element arrays there we go two element arrays representing xy coordinates and it talks about well what if you get something that is um that can be used as an xy coordinate but doesn't come in exactly the input that you want same similar to 4.3 you know not exactly the way that it needs to look how can you still use it, still leverage it, um, even if it's not quite right? Right, exactly. So Avdi is thinking, how can we expose conventional ways that Ruby handles the situation with our own defined custom objects? 
And so in this example, he is again trying to draw a line. So there's an XY coordinate, there's a start and there's an end. And so he ends up actually creating this new class called point. And in the initialize method, it, it takes in an X and a Y. And then, and this is the part that matters, it has a method in there called two chords, so two coordinates. And it's kind of similar to the idea of two array, but it's useful in situations where I have an input where it wouldn't respond well to a two array. And so when you are doing the checking in a method, it says, does this start respond to two coordinates, which comes from our point class? And if so, then it handles it fine. Otherwise, it can use just two array, which is kind of the standard way of doing it. Um, and so it allows for a little bit more flexibility. Did I explain that right? Yes. I think you've, you've explained that wonderfully well. And I just wanted to touch on that bit where he calls the method two coordinates. And, you know, Avdi says it may have been the case that there might have been a general array conversion that have worked, but he talks about wanting to add a little more meaning to the conversion call. And I found this bit quite interesting because I thought he was bringing this idea of um, the pro a problem domain and the language surrounding it. So it was making me think of the domain-driven design stuff. Um, and so, you know, that's this idea of where you add abstractions to your code um, such that it can be discussed in terms that are familiar to non-technical stakeholders. Uh, I haven't used much of this myself, but I, I do find it quite interesting, you know, being fascinated by how you can discuss your code in such a way that just fits the problem domain and the language around it, because that's when you can focus on the business value. One of my friends, Peter Saxton, actually wrote an excellent blog post series on this. So I recommend you or anyone else to check it out if you're interested in finding out more. Oh, wonderful. So the one thing that to me was a little bit confusing about this example was I wasn't sure what the X, Y pair, like what the input would be that wouldn't work well. Is it the fact that they want integers instead of possibly passing in strings? Like what, like what was, you know, in the file example, it was something that respond, responds to, you know, um, to path or, but also a string would work. So in this example, what's the thing that we are trying to accept in this method that we wouldn't normally accept? So I got the sense that we are in this domain where we need coordinates and we have this idea of we could just define an array or just map it as an array, a two-element array, but really there's more meaning that we need to encapsulate in that. And so it's helpful to define our own thing called coordinates which can act on this thing called a point because rather than just having like you say an integer that doesn't have enough information or the right behavior for what a point is so a point on a map you can have this idea it's got an x coordinate it's got a y coordinate you can name it and it's got coordinates so I think what it does is it just gives you that flexibility to input a broader domain into the objects that you're designing that fit what you need. So if we were just dealing with integers and arrays, how do we then start naming those points on a map or plotting a map? Something that I was thinking was this idea that when you start thinking about points and coordinates rather than integers and arrays, then you can have a system where if anyone, if you think about this domain-driven stuff, a non-technical person can come along and say, okay, I need to have all the points along this certain longitude, or I need to have 
all the coordinates within this geographical area. And because you've got this domain, it's easy for you to ex- to draw those concepts out already because, you know, you would map similar X values or similar, similar Y values or X values within this many distance of one another. Whereas if you had just been dealing with plain integers and arrays, they don't have any concept of this map domain baked into them and so it just becomes difficult in your system yeah that makes a lot of sense so whereas the previous chapter or the previous section was more about taking an input and you know still using usable input and modifying it a bit to actually have it work this one is more about domain it's more about context like you said if someone else were to walk into this code base or even someone who you know isn't a coder takes a look at it they they have some clues they have some idea of what this is about and it's really more about also adding some more methods some more information some metadata like you said the name Um, and it's more about that which kind of feels like this solution is more of a communication tool than it is about having something work that otherwise would break that that but also we've got a method now that can take raw xy pairs or these point objects which i've defined so we still have that flexibility that we discussed in the previous section around conditionally calling these conversion protocols so i guess they i see a difference between in the first example or in the in the previous section it was a user will probably or you know might give you a string And if you don't create more flexibility in that method, then that method breaks, right? Whereas this one feels like we'll probably get integers, but if you want to open it up and also get other things, we can do that too. Does that make sense? Like it feels like this is more of adding and enhancing and the other one felt more like more defensive, I guess. Yeah, I think this section definitely speaks more to this idea of we're designing a domain and how can we draw in some of the things that we've been learning about to make a system or, or a code base that is easily extendable and it yes. naturally fits the story we're trying to tell. Yes. Um, whereas mm-hmm. like you say, the last one, it's saying, hey, we could get any sort of um, user-defined client objects and some of those we'll want to be able to handle. So what's the best way to allow for that so this sort of brings in last chapter i think was more about protecting yourself against against the users users. (laughs) or at least you know saying saying hey i can be accommodating all right user you want to input that my method can handle it (laughs) Uh, whereas this is saying hey i am dealing with maps and coordinates and i've got this method and you might want to put some things in but I just need to make sure you can talk to two coordinates and that I can get you looking like something that I know how to work with which also happens to be something that I myself has create have created yeah this one feels more like let me give you more context let me give you more tools um versus let me prevent you from not working at all yeah and I, and what Avdi says you know is this is drawing on Ruby's own conversion protocols and saying we should just use them in our own code because they're they're such a good idea yeah yeah totally agree neat fantastic so i think that wraps up 4.4 yeah that was good (laughs) nice and concise i like it indeed so next week what 
do we have to look forward to? Next week, we are going to look at at least the following section, defined conversions into user-defined types. And based on what we get in an hour, we might be able to cover a couple other sections too. Yep, but we'll let you know. So follow us on Twitter and check out the site to keep in the loop of how far we're getting. Yes, definitely. Bye. See you next week.